listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. gentleman that was particularly difficult to work with in the kitchen and uh, he was a marvelous guy uh, on the in that he was just this exceptional teacher for me now this is a nice way of saying he was in the conventional sense a total jackass but having to face his jackassery on a daily basis, trying to prepare meals for, you know, 75 people every day. It was a very, very interesting thing, watching the way he met his life in the kitchen. Uh, and he would, he would say things I couldn't believe, you know, I was like, you know, you're a Zen priest. You're not supposed to say stuff like that. You know, I'm going through all this shoulds and he oughta and shouldn'ts and things like that. And this one day, it finally kind of hit this, this crescendo. We were, um, I guess I was, I was behind on the slice and the strawberries or something like that. And he was putting together a fairly complex meal for the uh, Zendo. (laughs) And, uh, he started, started barking, you know, at people and so forth. And I just said, that's not very kind. And it was like, I said it and then you know, wanted to grab it, you know, you know, because he kind of scared me, I guess. And he turned around and smiled at me and he said, with this literally a devilish kind of grin, he says, this is good for your practice. And he's right. He was 100% right. It was a tremendous teaching that came from someone I didn't, I didn't look at as a teacher until that moment. It was very powerful. And indeed is very powerful to, for us to consider who is it that is our teacher. Maybe a better question, who is not our teacher? What situation is not our teacher? The entire universe conspires to teach in every single moment. Every single moment. We're offered a vast array of teachers and teachings that are all about supporting our awakening. Awakening to what? Awakening to that truth that's beyond name and beyond form. An awakening to a systematic disidentification with every single aspect of mind and body so that we can participate more fully with every single aspect of mind and body. I talk about this a great deal, but our work here is not to eradicate anything. It's not to get rid of the ego. It's not to deny the body. Our work is to study the relationship that mind and body have with themselves 
our work is to study what we cling to. And in the studying of our clinging, we actually can begin to get on the other side of it. If we're clinging to physical comfort, practicing in a cold room, perfect. Because you know you're going to get toasty warm right after this. Either alone or better yet, with someone close to you. Everything supports our awakening. Everything. 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 And when we can begin to see our situation in this capacity, we can begin to see that the universe is in its own beautiful way offering us love, total support for our awakening all the time. Just as a caveat, know that the universe's love is not always interpreted as love by the ego. (laughs) You have to be ready. You have to be ready to receive. And when you are ready to receive, all sorts of space begins to open up that allows for whatever the universe is offering to kind of have a a place that can be cultivated. Seeds get sown. I was watching uh, (laughs) my two-year-old Maeve. She just, I mean, she totally has my heart. You know, so does my other, you know, the world has my heart. But just, man, that little beast, she's taking a, a, a dandelion, um, uh, this is several weeks ago, that was beautifully formed. And it's like, Daddy, watch. And she couldn't, she couldn't hit the, you know, the little things to make them burst, you know. And so I go, oh, wow, show me really close. And I tried to blow out of the side of my mouth so it looked like she, she felt like she was doing it. And I did it pretty well, though not quite. And then they kind of went all over the place. And she just looked at me and went, Wow. And that's exactly what's happening. That little wow moment for her, just like this, that's happening all the time. We may not be able to feel it. We may not be able to have those little seeds land on an open, fertile space within. But stillness generates that type of space within us. Meditation, practice, reading, listening to, to Dharma talks, hanging out with spiritual friends. That creates this space. It creates this opening. It creates this fertile area within from which flowers can arise. The, those flowers, not only are they beautiful, but they then are things that we can offer to the rest of humanity as we meet them day in and day out. They're beautiful offerings we can give to each one of our teachers, each one of our situations. 
each one of our circumstances so that instead of leading a life built on circumstance and identification, we build an ultimate life that flowers from open and fertile interior space that we cultivate with stillness. Be warm. So I had two things that I wanted to address tonight, if I can. Um, the first was a really kind of a, a beautiful question that was thrown thrown my way about how it, it went something like this. The person was describing recently how they've had uh, they've had several mystical moments. You know, they've had several uh, openings. They've had uh, those. Those bliss, bliss states and so forth, and you know it's like they're there for a while, where they feel like, oh my goodness gracious, uh, awakening has finally dawned, and then um, uh, they, you know, they yell at their dog or something <laughs> shortly thereafter. You know, it's like God, you know, I thought I was there, and then you know, um, to clarify this whole phenomenon, this kind of, you know, we think we get it and then, bam, we're right back. I've uh, I've referred to this sometimes as the rubber band effect. Um, How in awakening, we we kind of, it's like if we are kind of a taut experience um, bound between, imagine between, you know, between my fingers there's a rubber band and then we take the other hand and we kind of pull, pull that rubber band, right? And it's like, oh, I get it, twang, and then it goes right back. Yeah. Well, essentially, um, this is a fairly natural byproduct of uh, being a human being in the world. That we do go through, we have these peak experiences, but that there is a, a center of gravity, psychologically and spiritually, that kind of pulls us back into a certain space. We could look at it, if you want to use physics, we could look at it as inertia. We've got inertia kind of carrying us in one direction. And to get the, you know, the ball to move into a different direction takes a tremendous amount of energy. Sometimes, you know, an insight may or may not help move that, uh, uh, you know, alter the motion and so forth. But to really assume that just kind of a breakthrough experience is going to change the whole thing suddenly, um, that, that kind of t- it tends to disappoint. So I'm going to read just a real, real quickly here. I'll give you a little background. I've got just a couple hundred words here. Um, from a great book, by the way, that makes a perfect stocking stuffer, as I've mentioned all the time. Great Hanukkah gift, too. Buddha's... Uh, Enlightenment was December 7th, as many of you know. Um, uh, (laughs) So I call this the rubber band effect. Here on page 89. Another important realization as we climb occurs when we see that meditation won't necessarily keep us happy. Meditation, done correctly, merely affords us direct and continual exposure to the deep silence underneath whatever is happening right now. Exposure to deep silence reminds us that all things are temporary, including anything we think might make us happy in a permanent way. 
any object that the mind can seek in order to gain happiness, such as a new car, a new job, a new relationship, a new religion, or anything else, might put the mind in a state of happiness for a while, but neither our mood nor the thing that fueled the mood will last forever. At some point, there will be decay, boredom, exhaustion, or pain, and when this happens, the mind snaps like a rubber band back to its position prior to acquiring the thing it thought would make it happy. This applies equally to enlightenment. If we think enlightenment will make us happy forever, we're going to be really disappointed because enlightenment does not make us happy. Enlightenment makes us aware. And that means we become aware of our happiness at a deeper level. It means also that we become aware of our despair at a deeper level. It means we are more raw. We are more exposed. But that deeper rawness, that deeper exposure, also lends itself to a more powerful and profound transparency. Where instead of the winds blowing on us, they blow through us. The good news is that stillness practice can change the position of the, of the rubber band, so to speak. Imagine um, your right hand plucking a rubber band stretched between your left thumb and index finger. Each pull of the rubber band is like a new distraction that the mind thinks will offer it lasting happiness. In very little time, however, the tension builds as the rubber band stretches, eventually snapping it back to its original position. This process can continue for our whole lives, as if we existed solely for each snap of the rubber band. Stillness, though, mysteriously moves the left hand towards the right as it stretches the rubber band. The snaps are no longer as extreme, and the tension diminishes to the point of a peaceful equilibrium where our happiness is no longer dependent on any object at all. This is how our consciousness evolves. The more still we become, the more we begin to relax the tension of constant seeking and simply allow ourselves to live consciously as an expression of a deeper wholeness. So we can spend a tremendous amount of time snapping the rubber band back. What the stillness practice offers us is a movement of the stretched hand. Okay, So that we're actually, we've got less and less extreme plucking going on. Having said that, I have never met one teacher who hasn't, um, on some level, continued as they live to snap the rubber band and continue moving. Okay? One of the beauties of this process is we are never fully cooked. We're never all there. We're never totally enlightened as long as we're living in the world with all these teachers. There's always teaching. There are always teachers. And so to assume that we hit some omega point, you know, ah, I finally got there. That's what we call delusion. That's a story that our ego has written. I would encourage, on the other hand, that we begin to kind of look at this as a way of continually nudging the role of the ball or the boulder, continually 
trying to move in a particular direction that actually moves on its own through stillness, paradoxically. The stillness actually affords this deeper connectivity with the world as it is. And in that process, circumstances no longer bend and push. There's much less resistance. Now this can be uh, achieved in some pretty powerful ways. This is kind of the second part of what I was going to talk about. Um, (laughs) Extended retreats are just about the most useful tool anyone in this room could engage in. Meaning, you know, doing not just a one day or a weekend, but actually there are plenty of temples and organizations in the area that can allow for a, you know, seven-day Zen Sashin. I highly recommend them. A 10-day Vipassana retreat, I highly recommend those. You know, anything that's going to extend your stillness, you know, in, in a concentrated, compassionately structured way, I think makes an awful lot of sense. I also recognize that Infinite Smile is a rather profound experiment, seeing if we can do that work without forcing people with very, very busy lives and very deep commitments, um, you know, a way of kind of offering an alternative. And, and on the one hand, I'm thrilled because I can see that it's working. And on the other hand, um, I kind of wonder what would happen if people here would push themselves to that next level, take, you know, doing some, some extended retreats. I think it's just a really, really interesting thing for each of you to think on, think on it. Just you know, let it kind of percolate. Is this something I would be interested in doing? If so, um, I want you to feel free to come chat with me. I have some recommendations. Um, uh, but let's assume that you can't. Let's assume that you've got, uh, you've got commitments, you've got a very, very busy life where you just cannot take you know, a week off or three weeks off or six months off or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> letting your daily practice kind of revolve around some very, very simple, basic elemental aspects of the teaching I think can work wonders I was thinking about this today it's it's really odd how you know things kind of show up right when you when you're asking for them but um, I was really wondering about this it's like how can I as kind of the teacher dude sitting up in front um, help people who cannot go on extended retreats get you know, a deeper, a deeper experience. How can I juice their practice, so to speak? And uh, lo and behold, if um, Joseph Goldstein didn't come up with this really great little article in uh, uh, his, he has a newsletter, the Inside Meditation newsletter. And it was, it was, as I was thinking of the question, it suddenly this this tweet came up. I was watching, uh, you know, I was watching uh, my tweet deck. It's a thing that I use to actually manage my. You know, Twitter feed, and suddenly this thing pops up. I'm like, isn't that beautiful? So I click on it, and he had this really, really cool way of, he calls it, 
uh, and it's on the site. If you want to go to Infinite Smile, you'll see it there. I think it's uh, assuming that the tweet is still there. Um, he calls it uh, turbocharge your practice in nine minutes a day. Now, coming from Goldstein, this is particularly hilarious because he's always been one of these people like, you know, you just got to sit still, shut up and sit still, quit bitching about it, just shut up and sit still. And now he's like, nine minutes a day. I thought that was kind of a cool little evolutionary step for him. Um, and I'm going to kind of go through it in really, really basic, basic uh uh, basic ways, and then I'll I'll try to uh, hook up to a PDF of the of the newsletter on the site. Okay, but basically, his teaching, and this is going to sound very familiar. It's what I advocate a great deal of. But he put it in in a, I think a really cool way. Take three three minute meditations each day. Three three minute meditations. Now I'm going to add. In addition to the half hour you do each morning, right? Okay, good. So three three-minute meditations. Let the first meditation be about what is it that is aware? Who is it that is aware? Every single person in this room is aware right now. You're aware of the talk that I'm giving. You're aware of the temperature in the room. You're aware of the feeling of your tukas against a cushion or on a chair. Who is it that's aware of this? What is it that is aware of this? You'll find nothing. You can really look for it. Well, I am. Okay, show me that. Show me that and we're in business. Show you what? Show me the I that is doing this feeling. Show me the I that is aware. We run into problems there. We run into something that is precisely beyond the mind. Because this thing that is aware of how your butt feels against the cushion or the chair is also the thing or thinglessness that is aware of everything else. It's aware of time. It's aware of experience. It's just raw, naked awareness. What does it look like? You won't find that either. And so what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a life that has been predicated, most likely, on being situated in an I sense, in a me-ness, an ego, <laughs> amigo, amigo, it's amigo, an ego. You, 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 we've, we've built this whole life around this identification with this thing that feels, that has, you know, that thinks, that has an opinion, that is able to achieve. But what is it that is aware? So for three minutes, study that. Let there just be a three-minute meditation where you're utterly just filled with the question. What is it that's feeling? What is it that's aware? Who am I? Who is that? What am I? Next three minutes. 
maybe at another point during the day. Let there be a full recognition of this thing we call body. The temporary nature of this body. The full recognition that it ain't here for very long. It certainly is not static. It certainly doesn't stay the way we'd like it to stay. Recognizing full well, without avoidance, that we are going to die. And so are those we care most about. Without avoiding that fundamental reality, which is something we love avoiding, okay? Without avoiding it, standing right in that fire, we start developing a different sense of this story we've written about identity and body. That loosens things a little bit. Furthermore, he went on to explain, I thought really neat, in a neat way, we can do that in stillness. And oftentimes emotion comes with that. That's okay, it's just emotion. Being able to meet this fundamental reality that death is upon us with every tick of the clock, it gets closer. When we can begin to live real intimately with that, our life opens up a little bit. In motion, I don't know if any of you uh, have ever ever experienced this. Those, those of us that have, on any capacity, been athletic, um, I, I know that I, um, I used to, especially when I was swimming uh, competitively, there were these moments of utter and complete transcendence where I was just an energetic field. You know? Our body is a flowing energetic field. Next time you're walking down the street, tune in. Bring in some deep, deep awareness into this physical form you inhabit that's in motion. Whether it's riding your bike, it's swimming, it's running. Okay? Whatever you're doing that involves motion, be alive to the fact that there is flow and grace and energetic pulse to this life. For the last three minutes, let your awareness be utterly and completely open to what is going on in mind with thought. Meet those thoughts the moment they arise. Don't let them take you away from where you really are. Don't let them take you away from now. Be here now, as Ram Das might say. Be right with your thoughts as they arise. Okay? The studying of those thoughts, the recognition of those thoughts, actually helps us no longer identify with those thoughts. It's in the identification with the thoughts. It's in the identification with these scripts that the ego has written about who and what we are as a body, as a mind. When we can begin to create a little bit of distance there, there's a loosening that occurs. And in that loosening, what happens? We develop a greater fluidity, a greater sense, a felt sense of freedom. 
And in doing this, in actually studying our thoughts, recognizing that every single thing that goes on in mind is a memory, a judgment, or a plan, we can lose sense of the weight of I. Instead of, I feel frustrated, there's a feeling of frustration that's arising. Notice how the language differs so substantially there. Instead of, I'm in love, there's a sense of love that is arising. The I is no longer the center of gravity. The awareness is. And that awareness itself has no center and no circumference. That awareness is in fact us. And everything arises within it. Therefore, everything arises within, quote unquote, us. We indeed start to recognize our infinite and spacious nature. We start recognizing that as the meditation bell rings, there's no bell, there's no ringer of the bell, there's no hearer of the bell, there's just ringing. Everything begins to dissolve. We start recognizing that the witness collapses on itself, and we in fact are an embodied dance of space. I added that last part. Goldstein didn't talk about that, but still. It's exactly where it's pointing us. And does this mean we don't participate fully in the world? Of course we participate fully in the world. This work is not about escape. It's not about running away. It's not about avoiding. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's about standing still right in the face of it all. We're not running away from, and we're not running toward anything. We are embodying a generous response, an appropriate response to each and every bit of stimuli, each and every teacher and teaching that comes our way. Even for those of us sitting on the cushion, it's so helpful doing practices like this. Ego's always there. Subtly, trying to come back into experience. Very, very subtly creating identities that we kind of cling to. Sometimes it does it through the back door. Whoa! You know? So this is I think a really critical component piece of awakening is recognizing that there's still a tendency to go to sleep. Okay? And that there are practices out there offered by people that are really, really supportive in keeping us true to our ultimate goal. Okay? At least keeping us on the right track, a track of clarity. where the rubber band doesn't snap so hard back.
Yes. Yeah. A point of clarification. I'm envisioning maybe taking up Either. You could do it either. You could be, in other words, the, the, the beauty of awareness practice is that it can happen while you're still or while you're in, in, in movement. Okay? Um, I would say that if we only let our practice be confined to stillness, sitting still, or movement, it can become unbalanced. Most people find that if they start with the sitting practice, however, and they, they, they understand at a visceral level, they experience at a visceral level what stillness is like, that can be carried into movement real easily. It doesn't work the other way as much. Although people who have had transcendent uh, experiences through movement usually have an easier time of sitting still and recognizing what it can be. Does that kind of make sense? Um, either way, but I, I think that I would advocate at least that there is a that there is a stabilization of one's sitting practice, and that that Goldstein's turbocharged steps here uh, offer they augment a stillness practice that you already have. My, one of my favorite, most profound uh, zendos is uh, behind the wheel of my car, because you're already a witness. You're a witness to what's going on around you, and you need to be very, very, very aware. Another little practice there I'll give you that my teacher suggested. This is years ago. I don't know if I've told you guys this. He, um, I was giving him a ride. Uh, I was giving him a ride up the hill, and this was, I'm driving along. It was fairly early, and I was totally nervous because this is like my teacher, you know, and he's pretty much like from Mars anyway. He really, I mean, he's just, just kind of weird. It's like he looks at you, and you're kind of like, ah, you know. <laughs> Don't look through me like that. Um, uh, Reb Anderson. You, I don't know if any of you guys know Reb Anderson, but he's just, I love the guy, but just bizarre. Anyway, he says, he says um, Michael, could I have a ride up the hill? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure, Reb. And uh, so he gets in the car and everything, and uh, I get in the car, and he buckles in. And, I mean, it's just the most normal thing in the world, right? And then uh, so I start the car, and I turn on the radio, and, and uh, um, I'm thinking to myself, well, what if he doesn't like this song? <laughs> maybe I should turn, turn And I just didn't know what to do, so I just kind of kept driving. And then I think, oh, maybe it's too loud. And, and I'm going through all this stuff. He's just a guy. But he was also carried this profound weight in my own experience. <laughs> and so I said, is this too loud? And I turned it down and he said, no, it's just fine. You know, sometimes it's really helpful if you take a moment before you turn the radio on. And I was just like, God, that is totally right. What if we're present before we turn on the tunes in the car? And I just thought that, I, to this day, every single time I turn on the radio, he flashes, like, in my face. You know? And it's a cool little teaching. Be aware. 
before you crank the tunes, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm a big fan of turning on music in your car loud and singing at the top of your lungs. I think that's just great. But doing it with full awareness is even more profound. It allows us then to turn it into a meditation if we're fully present with what it is that we're actually doing. <laughs> yeah. Kind of went off there. Sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. So what you're saying is whatever you do at any time, if you're going aware Whatever you're doing at any time, if you're paying utter, complete, and full attention, yes, you are in meditation. Letting your life become a meditation is a very profound step on the path. You can't escape it. It's the one thing we can't escape is our awareness. So yeah. Being in the moment, yeah. Not thinking about what's coming next. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's, you, you're, you can anticipate, but getting caught by that anticipation uh, usually limits the way we can experience things. It's the same thing. Having a memory is different than being caught by a memory or limited by a memory. The stories that the ego will write in relationship to anticipation and relationship to memory, they tend to lock us and diminish who and what we are and what we can be. It's not that the memories necessarily are something that we need to eradicate, but living through them, by them, because of them, what we're doing is we're living a script-oriented life. And scripts are great for a stage, but stages are by definition illusion. And the same thing applies to any type of future endeavor. If we're living by the script that the ego has written about how things should be or how we want them to be or how they need to be or how we want them to turn out, what are we doing? We're just authoring scripts that are built for a stage which by definition is illusory. And in either case we're in situations, and the same applies for judgment, any type of judgment. In any case, we have relegated our lives to ones that are confined by a stage of our own making, as opposed to being able to watch the stage play if we want or turn around and hit the exit into the, go into the light. We have choice. We have much greater flexibility. There's a much deeper completion to living as an audience member as opposed to living as an ego on the stage, especially when that ego knows it's been seen. <laughs> <laughs>